Hello, welcome to The Word Diet on the Pure Radio Network. My name is Eric Schonsberg. My goal with this show is to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my book project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the arc of the scriptures. The Word Diet's good for a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with partners. That way you get better accountability and richer discussion. And it's fine for seasoned Bible readers, but I'm really aiming the project at novices and strugglers, those who have not yet gotten into the great Word of God. If this is you, get a few friends to join you. If this isn't you, I'll bet you have a few friends in that boat. So why don't you get them to join you and work your way through the Word Diet. More information is available about the book project at thoroughlyequipped.org. For the radio show, we're in the books of First and Second Thessalonians, letters to new believers facing various problems. But the most notable was that their view of the end times was leading them to treat work and income far too casually. My goal with the show is the same as the book, to encourage you to read and help you understand the Bible. So please read along with us before, during, and after listening to the show. Today we'll introduce the book and start into the text. We're in the middle of Paul's writings, if you're trying to keep track of the books and the letters that Paul has written. This follows Romans and First and Second Corinthians, and then you have the four books that are remembered by the acronym GEPC. When I was a kid, I learned it through General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, and that takes us to First Thessalonians. And the problem memorizing the order of the books here is there's a lot of T's going on. So Thessalonians, First and Second, follows GEPC. And then we move to some more T's, the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy, and then Titus. And then finally, it's Philemon that wraps up Paul's writings in the New Testament. So we read chapter 1, verse 1 of First Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. So a customary introduction from Paul following the customs of his time. I want to break down the verse, though. It's from Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and this is the missionary team that had evangelized Thessalonica back in Acts 17, verses 1 through 10a. Paul is the author, and it's his earliest letter, with the likely exception of Galatians. I've already covered Galatians in the Word Diet, a great and important book, so I commend those podcasts to you as well. Now, Paul is listed first, and that's consistent with his style elsewhere, but he does include the names of Timothy and Silas here as well. Given their partnership in the ministry, it's appropriate to mention them. This would also uplift and encourage them and share the spotlight. It also indicates that they're all in general agreement. Paul is not a lone ranger in any sense during his missionary work. He also does not mention his apostleship, which stresses his equality with Silas and Timothy, and it's not being questioned by the Thessalonians as it was in Galatians and Corinthians. And so he just doesn't bring it up here. He brings it up there to make the point that he has authority. That's not required here, apparently. Also on the team is Silas, or really the text says Silvanus, and it's often assumed to be Silas from the book of Acts written by Luke. Silvanus is, interestingly, the Roman god of forest, and so that has been redeemed as Silas is walking with Jesus. Silas is Paul's second missionary compatriot, and he joins on after the Barnabas-Mark split that is described in Acts 15, verses 36 through 40. 
And we also have Timothy who joined them in Lystra. This is described in Acts 16, verses 1 through 5. And of course, Timothy and Paul have a very close relationship, often used as a prototype for mentor-mentee relationships. For example, in 1 Timothy 1-2, Paul describes Timothy as his true son in the faith. So the letter is from Paul along with Silas and Timothy, and it's written to the church at Thessalonica. As for the city itself, it was the Roman capital of Macedonia in northern Greece. It was originally called Thermae for the hot springs that were there. Think of thermal as a word we would know today, and it's on the Thermaic Gulf. It was renamed Thessalonica for the name of Cassander's wife in 315 B.C., and she was the half-sister of the famous Alexander the Great. It was a major city rivaling Constantinople as the capital of the world at one time, and today it is called Thessaloniki or Salonika, with about 70,000 people. It's one of the few New Testament cities that is still flourishing. The church was planted by Paul and company on his second missionary journey around 50 AD, after a fascinating spirit-led double diversion from two places that Paul wanted to go to Europe and Thessalonica. This is described in Acts 16, 6 through 10, and I encourage you to read that passage. Barclay says here, to the left lay the teeming province of Asia, to the right stretched the great province of Bithynia, but the spirit would allow him to enter neither, driving him relentlessly to the Aegean Sea, for the first time, the gospel came to Europe. So this is a really big moment in Christian history. And the city itself had great strategic importance. It was located on the Via Ignatia, which ran from the Adriatic Sea to the Bosphorus. And so it linked the west and the east as a major trade route. And so a lot is at stake here. If Christianity can settle here, it would spread to the west and to the east, And so this is a key early moment in Christianity becoming a world religion. And as a brief aside, this is actually a really important apology for Christianity, that it is the one true world religion. Many other religions are large, but they're mostly stuck in various ethnic and cultural groups. It is only Christianity that has spread so far and wide to be considered a true world religion. Now, Paul had to leave Thessalonica early on after being driven out by the Jews, the Jewish leaders, in Acts 17, 1 through 9. In particular, verse 2 tells us that he spent three weeks in the synagogue, as was his custom, and so it's likely that he only spent three weeks in Thessalonica total, or at least not much more than that. This letter was written soon afterwards, within a year or so, from the city of Corinth, and 2 Thessalonians will follow soon after, Estimates here from commentators range from a few days to six months after what is apparently their mixed response and the additional questions they had for him, and he responds to that in a second letter. His early and quick departure left the church in a precarious position, especially with so many of them converting from paganism and idolatry rather than the good base of Judaism. And so they're in a rough position here, potentially. Barclay says, was it possible to make such an impression on a place in three weeks' time that Christianity was planted so deeply that it could never again be uprooted? Or was it necessary to settle down and work for months, even years? Thessalonica was a test case, and Paul was torn with anxiety how it would turn out. 
And extending Barclay's comment a bit, I think he's concerned, Paul is, for them as individuals, but I think to Barclay's main point, he's also concerned about the spread of Christianity and can it take place in only three weeks' time? That's a very interesting and important question. And of course, again, given how important Thessalonica was and strategic on the trade route, this was a big deal. There was a lot at stake here. So these are brand new believers. They are protected by the Holy Spirit, but they're also shepherded by Paul from afar by proxy. He sends Timothy to them. We read about that in chapter 3 and by these letters. I think this is fascinating if we think about how God works in general. One suspects that the Lord is going to protect all believers through the Spirit, but I think beyond that, it's also quite likely that he's going to protect by the Spirit as circumstances prevail. Here, this is the only way that the church is going to succeed, is from as much help as Paul can provide, but that's quite limited. It's going to be the Spirit miraculously growing in individuals and in the church at Thessalonica for it to survive. Elsewhere, we see that Paul preferred to invest in discipleship, and so I suspect that this is not a recipe for missions, that we shouldn't pop into some place for three weeks and move on. You do that when that's all you can do, and you rely on the Spirit. But when you can do more, as Paul models elsewhere in his relationship, and as Jesus models in his ministry, it's spending three years with a small group of people, empowering elders, deacons, leaders, etc. in the church, that is the preferred method when possible. So thankfully, verse 1 tells us that the letter is written to not just the church of the Thessalonians, but the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So to answer the previous question, is this possible? Could this work? Absolutely. And whatever Paul can do to help, that's fine. But at the end of the day, it's because the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ that this church can be successful through the empowerment of the Spirit. I also like the designation here that Paul gives. It's the church of the Thessalonians, but it's also in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That combination is fascinating. It's both geography and theology. It's both physical, that their place in the material world is being noted, the location they live in, and it's spiritual. And so we go back to Genesis 2, that mankind is made out of dust and breath. We're both human and divine. That combination we see throughout Scripture And both of them matter. Sometimes we emphasize the earthly without the spiritual. Sometimes we focus on the spiritual without enough of the earthly. But the fact is we are incarnate. We occupy time and place. And that's crucially important for how we live out our life, how we understand our faith, and so on. We also have the balance of God as both Father and Lord. And this underlines Christ's deity with this language, which is a perpetual interest and concern of the letter writers in the New Testament. Jesus Christ here is Greek for Savior, Messiah, so that gives both his human and his divine titles. So again, Paul is interested in a balanced case, if you will, in many different ways. On the word in, in this verse, John Stott notes that the Greek word here is ecclesia, which meant assembly and had both secular and religious usages. So what distinguished this body was not being an assembly, but rather what the assembly was rooted in and living in. And so again, it's not just the church of God in Thessalonica, it's the church of God in Thessalonica in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Stott says God's church was living in Thessalonica, and the Thessalonian church was living in God. Every church has two homes. It lives in God and in the world. 
And so Paul here is making a really important point that they're not just random. They're not randomly rooted. They are instead reassuringly rooted in a place of God's protection and reminding them where their security came from, a good and a great God. All right, it's time to take a break. Please check out Proclaim from Pure Radio, Kentuckiana's Christian Community Bulletin, available online at pureradio.org and with free paper editions in store at 200 locations. Please spread the word about Pure Radio, this station, and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we started into our introduction to 1 Thessalonians, and right now we're going to continue that introduction. Some really interesting broad comments from William Barclay and his commentary on Thessalonians. I want to start there in this segment. He says, There is no more body of documents that's more interesting in the New Testament than the letters of Paul. At the same time, there's often nothing so difficult to understand as a letter. To read a letter is like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. What a great analogy. And that points to some of the challenges of reading any of the epistles. We don't have the context very well down. We don't have the letters that led to the responses. We just have what we have. And so we do the best we can to infer from the response what was being said throughout this entire communication. Another interesting comment from Barclay, he says, with a few exceptions, all Paul's letters were written to meet an immediate situation. He was not in the least thinking of us when he wrote, but solely of the people to whom he was writing. A thing need not be transient because it was written to meet an immediate situation. All the great love songs of the world were written for one person, but they live on for the whole of mankind. It is just because Paul's letters were written to meet a threatening danger or a need that they still throb with life and is because human need and the human situation do not change that God speaks to us through them today. And so a lot of great stuff in this quote, but the letter is written to them, not to us. We see this mistake being made most with Revelation, where we assume it's written to us and not to the people that John was addressing. But it's true with any of these letters. They were written first to them, and now it's our job to try to interpret them. But, as Barclay goes on to point, that doesn't mean they're not valuable just because the letter was written to other people. They have great application to us because these concerns are universal. And so we can take the letters of Paul and the other epistles, and we can infer quite a bit about the character of God, about how to manage our own situations, and so on. We also see in these that they throb with life, to use Barclay's phrase, because Paul loves his people. And so just that alone is important. It's not the particular issues that are so important as the way that Paul addresses problems in general and how much he obviously loves his people. We'll come back to that theme quite a bit as we go. Now, what are the key themes in 1 Thessalonians? First, his thankfulness for their amazing faith and love despite persecution. Second, he's responding to his critics. Apparently, those critics were questioning his motives and his failure to return to the Thessalonians. Are the Thessalonians also questioning this, or are they just looking for the best answers to respond to his critics? Again, that's one of those questions we're not sure about, but Paul certainly addresses this question. What are the key issues at hand? Well, the church's moral failings, especially with respect to sexual immorality, the tendency toward division and anarchy, we'll see in chapters 4 and 5, And one of the biggest ones is eschatological confusion, confusion about the end times. 
especially how it relates to work and career and income. The Thessalonians were interpreting that the coming of Christ meant that they didn't have to put much energy into work, career, and income. And it's interesting that Paul speaks of Christ's return at the end of each chapter. It's obviously a point of great concern for him, and really probably the top reason that Thessalonians is unique and in the canon of Scripture. Now, the idea of work and faith is really important. It's a pre-fall institution. Adam is given work before he's even given Eve. So work is really important. Work, vocation, creativity, the sort of things we're supposed to do with our lives to accomplish in God's kingdom is crucial. I spent a lot of time on this in Ephesians 6, 5 through 9, which is episode 150. So I encourage you to listen to that. I also want to check in with the words of Eugene Peterson in his great book, Along Obedience in the Same Direction. In his chapter on work, he starts with Psalm 127 and then observes that some people have read these verses and paraphrased them to read as if you don't have to work hard to be a Christian. St. Paul had to deal with some of these people in the church at Thessalonica. If all effort ends up in godless confusion, as it did with the people at Babel, or in hypocritical self-righteousness, as it happened among the Pharisees, the obvious Christian solution is to quit work and wait for the Lord to come. Obviously, neither of those is attractive in a Christian worldview. Peterson continues, the pretentious work which became Babel and its pious opposite which developed at Thessalonica are displayed today on the broad canvases of Western and Eastern cultures, respectively. Western culture takes up where Babel left off and deifies human effort, the machine, technology, possessions. Eastern culture on the other hand, manifests a deep-rooted pessimism regarding human effort. All work is tainted with selfishness and pride, so the solution is to withdraw. The symbol of such an attitude is the Buddha, an enormous fat person sitting cross-legged looking at his own navel, motionless, inert, quiet. All trouble comes from doing too much, therefore do nothing. As Peterson summarizes this, the two cultures are in collision today, and many think that we must choose between them, but there is another option. Psalm 127 shows a way to work that is neither sheer activity nor pure passivity. It doesn't glorify work as such, and it doesn't condemn work as such. It doesn't say God is a great work for you to do, go and do it, nor does it say God has done everything, go fishing. I guess the way I've always thought of this from my pastor in Texas is God's provision and our participation. Everything comes through God's provision, so don't get too high on your own efforts, but everything is supposed to involve our participation. So it's God's provision and our participation that is the formula, and not a 50-50, but a 100% of each. It's 100% God's provision and 100% our participation. As Peterson notes, the Bible opens with God working, and if we're made in his image, he expects the same from us. As Peterson notes, the Bible begins with the announcement, in the beginning God created, not sat majestic in the heavens, not was filled with beauty and love. He created. He did something. Genesis 1 is a journal of work. And then how he works in Christ Jesus, we can work in the name of Christ Jesus through the spirit that indwells us. As Peterson concludes, the curse of some people's lives is not work as such, but senseless work, vain work, futile work, work that takes place apart from God, work that ignores God. So in these themes, moral failings, tendency toward division, eschatological confusion, and the Christian worldview and work, we see a series of present and future concerns. As Lewis talks about, we live the present in light of eternity 
But Ian Richards also notes that Paul here is not giving us tightly reasoned teaching. It's a warm reminder of truths already known and an exhortation to live blameless lives while looking expectantly for the Lord to come again. And so again, we live out the present in light of eternity. Finally, a few style considerations before we close out the introduction. John Stott takes one angle. He says, sometimes the human Paul is obscured by his apostolic office and authority. And I'm not sure that's really the case so much in Thessalonians. I think it's more the case in places like Galatians and Corinthians where his authority is under attack. But at times, right, the argument can move that direction. William Barclay takes another angle. He says, because Paul left us so many letters, we feel we know Paul so well. In them, he opened his mind and heart to the folk he loves so much. And in them, to this day, we can see that great mind grappling with the problems of the early church and feel that great heart throbbing with love for them, even when they were misguided and mistaken. Barclay makes another cool observation about the then common structure of such letters and the use of a secretary in particular. He says, this explains a great deal. Sometimes Paul is hard to understand because his sentences begin and never finish. His grammar breaks down and the construction becomes quite involved. We must not think of him sitting quietly at a desk, carefully polishing each sentence as he writes. We must think of him striding up and down some little room, pouring out a torrent of words while his secretary races to get them down. When Paul composed his letters, he had in his mind's eye a vision of the folk to whom he was writing, and he was pouring out his heart to them in words that fell over each other in his eagerness to help. And of course, that doesn't just speak to his letters to the Thessalonians, but many of the other letters as well. And Barclay's quote helped me picture the process of Paul writing those letters. Finally, in verse 1, we have the greeting itself. Grace and peace to you. This is Paul's favorite greeting, combining common greetings in secular Greek, a Christianized version of the word karen, which it gets turned into charis and joy and gifts and grace. And then the Hebrew word shalom, which means not just the absence of conflict, but fullness of life. It's a very robust term. It's also noteworthy that in Christian theology, grace always precedes peace in terms of the scriptures and in terms of our relationship with God. Okay, let's move on to verse 2 in 1 Thessalonians 1, where Paul writes, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. Barclay notes, in this opening chapter, we see Paul at his most winsome. In a short time, he was going to deal out warning and rebuke, but he begins with unmixed praise. And so a nice application for us as well. Look for common ground and commendation before you get into the nitty-gritty with people. Verse 2 here talks about gratitude and prayer. And notice the adverbs here, always, for all of them, and continually. The role of gratitude here is especially important for us as individuals and in our dealings with others. And in particular, he's thankful and encouraged by their relationship with God. He'll detail this in verses 4 and 5, where he talks about how they're loved by God and that the gospel came to them, not simply with words, but also with the power of the Spirit. And this is implied, but given so little direct contact with them, how encouraging it must have been for Paul to see how well they were doing. So through both the gratitude and the prayers, he's indicating how connected he is with them. And he has talked at length about how much he prays for them. But notice the word mention in there, which also limits him. He's only mentioning them in his prayers. He's not focusing on them as the only thing that he's doing. Prayer is both a lifestyle and an event. And we don't spend all day praying for one person. 
We pray for people in passing as part of the breathing and the lifestyle of prayer as we communicate with the Holy Spirit in our day-to-day, moment-to-moment walks. For Paul in particular, the connection of gratitude and prayer is very cool as well. He's praying in gratitude for them. The details of that are in verse 3, but we won't have time to get into the details of that until the next segment. Okay, it's time to take a break. Stay tuned. We'll be back in a minute. Right now we're in 1 Thessalonians, very early on, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. I've had a few things to say about verse 2, but have more to say, and then we'll move into the beautiful and inspiring verse 3. Paul writes, We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So note that he's praying for other people rather than himself. Many times prayer reduces down to just simply treating God like a big vending machine. And here he's praying for others. In particular, he's thanking God for others who have been a blessing to him. And so we should pray as well for people who have been a blessing in our lives. If we don't, in essence, we're taking them or them as a gift from God for granted. And we don't want to do that. If we turn the coin over, we can also see an implied command and opportunity for us as well. Are we a source of joy or grief for fellow believers? Do we give people a reason to be thankful for us? And then notice that Paul has certainly very specific people in mind as he gives this prayer. It's not just a general prayer for the Thessalonians. Presumably, it's a prayer for specific people. And we think about the role of thanksgiving in verse 2 and the role of memory In verse 3, John Stott says, For it is when we remember people, their faces, names, and needs, that we are prompted both to thank God and to pray for them. In verse 3, we see a great commendation from Paul. In fact, this has been a memory verse for me. We use it in our discipleship curriculum to wrap up a key part in that process. And frankly, it's what I'd like on my epitaph. It's a wonderful phrase. It's something to live up to. That he continually remembered the Thessalonians for these three things. Notice also these are really robust definitions. He doesn't just give a list of three. It would read very differently if it says, we remember before God and Father your work, your labor, and your endurance, or your faith, your love, and your hope. There's other places where those words are listed off, but it's a very robust definition he gives here. Your work produced by faith and so on. He also, as the passage continues, backs it up with evidences for all three. And so sometimes we don't want to just list off attributes, but actually give evidence for the things that we're providing a commendation for. So let's talk about the three and tear this passage apart a little bit. The first one is work produced by faith. Barclay says, nothing tells us more about a man than the way in which he works. In fear of the whip, for hope of gain, from a grim sense of duty, or inspired by faith. And here Paul is obviously talking about a genuine faith which produces works. Romans 1.5, through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. In verse 10, Paul is saying we're saved to do good works, but in the previous two verses in Ephesians, he talks about how we're not saved by works, we're saved by faith, but that faith should lead to the good works that Paul describes in Ephesians 2.10. Or in James 2, verse 14, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save them? 
That's a difficult question, but an important one. If your faith is not resulting in good works, is it a saving faith? Verse 18 of James 2, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. And so faith and works go together. They don't save us, but they are a signal of a saving faith. As John Stott says, a true faith in God leads to good works, and without works, faith is dead. Even if Paul usually stresses the faith which issues in works, and James the works which issue from faith. C.S. Lewis talks about how they're the two sides of a pair of scissors. They can't really be separated. The second phrase is labor prompted by love. The Greek word for labor here means an exhausting effort, and so love often involves working hard, not being lazy. The third phrase is endurance, patience, perseverance, inspired by hope. A look at the long run, which is where hope is built, is where we get the long run behaviors of endurance, patience, and perseverance. Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And that hope is a confident assurance, not mere wishful thinking. Hebrews 6.18 and 19 We have fled to take hold of the hope set before us so we can be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's interesting, this is one of the many post-gospel references to hope where there are very few. I've got one in my notes uh, in the gospels themselves, but our hope is built on the ministry of Jesus, what he did, defeating death, and so on. And then going back to all of verse 3, what a wonderful phrase. Calvin said it was a brief definition of true Christianity. It's cool that Paul encourages them and that they're worthy to be encouraged and that he gives such specific references versus some vague platitudes about how wonderful they are. It's also amazing in light of there being such new believers, the new convictions they have, the moral standards they're living up to, and willing to endure suffering, as we'll see later in the passage. All of these attributes point outward, faith toward God, love toward others, and hope toward the future. The work, labor, and endurance we have is both in relationship to God and then to others. And finally, all of these are productive evidences of genuine belief in Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. If not, they're false or counterfeits. It's either intellectual assent without trust or hope as wishful thinking, or it's degenerate, reducing love to, say, sentimentality. But robust versions of all of these stem from an authentic and robust faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit. We also have to keep in mind that the context of the letter is particularly worried about their work ethic. The Word and Life Study Bible observes that all of these are marketplace terms. Christians in the workplace understand that useful results come only from hard work, diligent labor, and patience. Hebrews 6, 10 through 12, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And the writer of Hebrews there speaking not only to the workplace, but to every other facet of life that love, hope, peace, patience. Those are the sorts of things that, again, stem from the relationship we have in God and the indwelling of the Spirit. So this is a great verse to take stock. How are you doing with respect to work and your labor and endurance? If they're not your top three, what does it take to get them there? 
For one thing, it's the importance of rooting these things in the faith, hope, and love that Paul has been talking about here. Those are the internal catalysts. Romans 5, 1 through 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Colossians 1, 3 through 6, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You can hear Paul's echoing words here throughout the other epistles. It's a common theme because this is the reality of the Christian life. When we root our lives in the faith, love, and hope, then the work, labor, endurance, patience, peace, and so on is a natural fruit of that. Hebrews 10, 22-24, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with a full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. 1 Peter 1, 21 and 22, through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Probably the most famous compilation of these three is in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where Paul talks about faith, hope, and love. But even there, they turn out to be robust terms. Faith is a reference to our justification, love to our sanctification, and hope to our glorification. Faith points back to the past, love is in the present, hope is in the future. Again, we want to live lives based on faith, living lives in the present, in light of eternity. All right, let's take a break here. If you're on Facebook, like Pure Radio and friend me there. Questions and comments are welcome on my Facebook. Previous episodes are available through podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and so on. We'll be back in a minute. Welcome back to The Word Diet. In the previous segment, we finished 1 Thessalonians 1, 3, and now we move to verses 4 through 6 of chapter 1. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. First reference here is to brothers in verse 4. It's used 24 times in First and Second Thessalonians. It underlines the equality that Paul feels with them, and in particular between Jew and Gentile, and on top of that, between new believers and the proud Pharisee that he had been in the past and the apostle he is in the present. Cool verbs in verse 4, God loved them. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love for us. And this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
and had chosen them. The idea of election, predestination, for example, Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, where he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. On the word loved, which can also be translated beloved, Barclay says the phrase beloved by God was a phrase which Jews applied only to supremely great men like Moses and Solomon and to the nation of Israel itself. So for Paul to use that here with commoners and Gentiles, as in Thessalonica, is very impressive. On the word chosen, C.S. Lewis talks about the importance of predestination, election, and being chosen as important to our salvation and our sense of it, that it's not merely wishful thinking, that God chases us down. God wants relationship with us. John Stott adds that this shows the doctrine of election, far from making evangelism unnecessary, makes it indispensable. Paul claims to know this, what he's talked about in verse 4, as revealed by, in verse 5, how God had moved in Paul and his friends the fellow missionaries, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the power of the words of the gospel they had shared. And it's from their deep conviction. Ray Stedman notes that it moved their will and yielded their lives. He had seen the gospel at work in them, and that is how he knows that they were loved and chosen. He also knows through the Holy Spirit, Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. But that's not enough. They had a response to the message that Paul also talks about. For example, he talks about how they imitated Paul and Silas and Timothy and the importance of imitation. There's so many references to this, imitating Christ, for example, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, and Paul asking them to imitate him insofar as he is imitating Christ. We can't imitate Christ exactly because we can only read about him, but we can imitate others who are godly in their following of Christ. And it's not a matter of pride. It's practically the case that we have to have people we can follow, people who have skin in our present day that we can follow and see how they live the life walking with Jesus. This is to be a norm in the Christian life. Can I say this like Paul does, that you should imitate my life? Can I say that without pride? Am I ready for this, whether someone asks or not? If I'm not living the sort of life that can be, should be imitated, then what am I doing? Paul confidently, but without pride, encourages them to imitate him insofar as he imitates Christ. And the other thing in the response to their message later in verse 6 is that they have joy despite suffering. In this, they follow Paul and Christ apparently despite harassment, social ostracism, and some form of persecution. James 1, 2, and 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The persecution they were suffering was helping them mature in their faith. And the sign of joy that they illustrate to Paul is part of him understanding that they are maturing in the faith. It gives them great confidence that God loved and chose them, great confidence in the ministry that God gave him, 
uh, to the church at Thessalonica and that it is in fact changing their life, that they have a saving sort of faith. The evidence of the changed lives, theirs and Paul's, is what gives Paul so much visible hope. It's not mere intellectual assent, it's transformation and trust. One more angle to pursue here is how the gospel must be preached. We see that in verse 5. It's with words, and from his example of imitation, it's not something that's simply articulated. It must be shown and modeled, and with their lifestyle. He talks about how you know how we lived among you. So he had backed up his talk with walk. So it is with words, but it follows with action. Second, it's with power. So it comes from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and from deep conviction within their human spirits. John Stott says the spirit without the word is weaponless. The word without the spirit is powerless. And then overall, it's all with the spirit. Verse six, joy is given by the Holy Spirit. The spirit is working on them in terms of both justification, bringing them to salvation and their ongoing walk and process of sanctification. So there you've got a nice five-point sermon in verse 5. The gospel must be preached with words, with lifestyle, with power, with deep conviction, and with the Spirit. All right, let's read verses 7 through 9. So you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. So Paul had encouraged them to imitate him, and the result of it is that the Thessalonians had become a model and were responsible for the Lord's message ringing out to all the believers in the local area and everywhere. He specifies northern and southern Greece, where Thessalonians was, and where Paul traveled after there, completes that proper order of imitation like we talked about in verse 6, others of the Thessalonians who are imitating Paul, who is imitating Christ. And it completes the cycle of evangelism. The gospel came in verse 5, it was welcomed in verse 6, it rang out in verse 8. John Stott says, It is by the gospel that the church exists, and by the church that the gospel spreads. Each depends on the other, each serves the other. Barclay points to the sheer defiance of early Christianity when all prudence would have dictated a way of life that would have escaped notice and so avoid danger and persecutions. The Christians blazoned forth their faith. They were never ashamed. Their faith and their lives rang out in contradiction to what the world wanted from them. In verses 8 and 9, this was so much so that Paul and company didn't need to brag about them. Those who had heard did it for them. So we have here the combination of preaching, which rang out. We have indirect witness, your faith in God has become known, which takes us back to Paul's commendation in verse 3, the labor prompted by love, the work produced by faith, and the endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. They had that, and it spoke volumes to those around them. So we have great need for the former. We need preaching, but It's the indirect witness which cements it. It's the prospective power of the witness of others, the non-professionals that is so important in this regard. We can think of both the direct and indirect impact of lifestyle evangelism. Got to use words at times, but it has to be backed up by a life well-lived. Stott calls these tongue-in-cheek holy gossip and rumor evangelism, that people hear something about us without actually hearing it directly. They see it in our lives first, and it's a sort of gossip or rumor that then gets connected to the glory of God who has saved us. 
There's also a combination of hearing and seeing here. Stock quotes Douglas Webster on this and says the communication of the gospel is by seeing as well as hearing. This double strand runs all through the Bible, image and word, vision and voice, opening the eyes of the blind and unstopping the ears of the deaf. We have to be able to speak, but we also have to back it up with the lifestyle. So let's move on to verses 9 and 10 in chapter 1. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So here Paul connects their witness to the power of their saving testimony. In verse 9, he notes that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God, and that's quite a turn. You can imagine them going against family and culture to make this decision and the courage it takes, the intellectual honesty it takes to make that sort of move. On the other hand, what they were following turns out to be garbage, right? So in another sense, you're leaving that which has failed, dead idols, to move to the living God. They're not moving to Judaism. They're moving to God and Christianity. They're not moving from idols that have been effective, but in fact false idols to the true God, and from the many to the one. They've also moved from the visible to the invisible and the tangible to the intangible, which is a bit of a stretch for most people. Most of us prefer concrete things over less tangible things, and they're moving from the impersonal to the personal. These are creatures of a creator, These are not man-made gods. This is the God who made man. John Stott says they move from superstitious or sophisticated idols, like we have in Ephesians 5, 5, greed and immorality. Idols, it doesn't matter if they're sophisticated or superstitious, they're still idols. And the Thessalonians have moved from the one to the other, from the many to the great and good God. It's also important that they weren't just turning from an old life, but turning to a new life, as we see in John 10.10, the abundant life that Jesus promises. Stott says we could say that it is the exchange of one slavery for another, so long as we add that the new slavery is the real freedom. Verse 10 says they're waiting for his son. Paul says the son is coming from heaven, literally the heavens, the sky through which Christ had recently gone in Acts 1 whom he raised from the dead, speaking of God's power of resurrection and God's promise that assures us and them of Christ's return. And then the last phrase, who rescues us from the coming wrath, could be a reference to general troubles for all time, but most likely a specific reference to the contemporary drama that they were facing, including Rome and Jerusalem in 70 AD and all the uh, turmoil of that time. Or it could certainly be eschatological as well, speaking of the very end of time. I like 2 Corinthians 1.10 on this. Paul writes there, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So whatever Paul means here, whether it's deliverance from a specific thing, God delivers for all history. And that will happen at the very end of time as well. Verse 10 is also the first of every chapter having a reference to Christ's return. So again, the importance of eschatology and their messing up their eschatology is something that Paul is most interested in in this letter. The Life Application Bible says all of us should respond to the good news as they did. Turn to God, serve God, and wait for his Son. Barclay says the Christian is called to serve in the world and wait for glory. And again, we're back to verse 3, the faith love and hope, again, speak to justification, sanctification, and glorification, 
the hope and the glorification are a key part of that formula, what Stock calls a three-part analysis of Christian conversion, and arguably the fullest account of it in the New Testament is right here. It's interesting as well that verse 9's serve is active and verse 10's wait is passive. Stott observes that serving is working for Christ on earth while waiting is looking for Christ to come from heaven. Yet these two are not incompatible. On the contrary, each balances the other. On the one hand, however hard we work or serve, there are limits to what we can accomplish. On the other hand, although we must look expectantly for the coming of Christ, we have no liberty to wait in idleness. Thus, working and waiting belong together. In combination, they will deliver us both from the presumption which thinks we can do everything and from the pessimism which thinks we can do nothing. Lord, help us to serve and to wait. Help us to work hard but to rest our hopes in you. It's been good to be with you today. We hope you'll join us next time on The Word Diet.